This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are listening to the 2001 Opeth album, Blackwater Park. Yes, indeed we are. Happy New Year, everyone, by the way. Uh, this yeah. is our bonus episode for Volume 2, and uh, yeah, we, we've decided to do something a bit unusual, given that it's a bonus track. Um, at the start of... Back at the start of Volume 2, we decided to try something new for our Patreon supporters, our patrons, and we held a poll to see which album they, that is you listening to this, wanted us to talk about. Um, Each patron, we asked each patron to name one album, uh, and we did a random selection from those nominations to select what we talked about. If you've been listening for a while, you'll remember all of that. This was back at the start of Volume 2, and the result was... um, uh, volume 2, track 5, where we listened to Mastodon's album Blood Mountain. Uh, and everybody had a good time. And, you know, we, we figured it was it was an experiment that worked. It was good. Um, however, because the selection... We knew the selection was going to be entirely random. So we allowed people to nominate something that had already been nominated. The idea being the more people pick the same album if they want, you know, then naturally the greater chance... Right, the more names in the hat. Right, that it will get selected, exactly, yes. Yeah. So, we, you know, we said if you want to pick the same album as somebody else, go for it. That's absolutely fine, um, because that will actually increase the chances of us choosing it. However, it is... It was truly random, so as it happened, that's not how it turned out. <laughs> the the, uh, the sign of true randomization. Um, it's like the old uh, iPod shuffle thing when pe- people used to complain... Like my iPod's not the shuffle's not really random because it played like the same band two tracks by the same band twice in a row. It's like no, that's kind of the point of being truly yep. random <laughs> is that that can happen anyway. So uh, so that didn't happen, but we did feel kind of bad that literally we had uh, five people, which is a sixth of like all of the people who nominated right picked, that's a good chunk right picked one album one out of every six people all picked the same album and yet it didn't get selected because it was random um now the people thank you very much for to everyone who took part in that and all of our patrons of course but the people who picked that album were kenny mobley eric panikian jack chambers daryl garland and charles andre lavalejean uh and the album was of course as brian already said blackwater park by opeth and so I think a few weeks after we'd done that episode, we thought, do you know what? Maybe we should do that as a as a bonus episode, because that'll be fun. Because clearly, this is an important album to, you know, assuming that our patrons are a good representative cross-section of our listeners, this is clearly an important album to them. Uh, and so we decided, yeah, that's that's what we're going to do. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting in that it's an album that I had no familiarity with whatsoever. So anytime that we have a a chunk of our listeners that are like, this is a super important album and I haven't had any experience with it. That that's something I would naturally seek out anyway. Absolutely. So to be able to then include it as an episode, I think makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, same here, same here. And we'll get into this later, but I, you know, I'd heard of Opeth, but I'd never heard the album wasn't really familiar with them at all. So yeah, there was that natural interest of, Oh, okay. This album is clearly important to a whole generation of, I, I kind of feel like this is the generation after us if you like, because of when the album came out. I would agree. You know, after you and I. so And this album is clearly important to them. Uh, so, yeah, as you say, like, just sort of interesting to dig into it and find out why. Um, before we get to that, though, let's have uh, some quick follow-up. Um, and before, actually, before we even get to the follow-up, <laughs> let's have, uh, I want to remind uh, everyone that if you want to get in on the Volume 3 
listener choice nomination uh because we're about to start volume three you know soon some point soon uh we'll start recording those um so if you want to get in on that nomination the nomination for that series because we're going to do it again it was it was fun so we'll do it again and of course you can also you know by doing this help support thrash it out along the way then you can do so by becoming a patron a uh, patron <laughs> and patreon <laughs> a patron at patreon oh i do that all the time oh man so by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thrash it out patreon.com slash thrashed out um uh, since the last episode by the way that we recorded we have two new patrons to say hi to hello and they are sasha brinkman and eric richards so thank you very much to them and to thank all of our and patrons welcome. yeah who you know as we've said help support the show help keep us thrashing and uh, contribute to us doing this show so uh, thank you very much for that um and then actual follow-up and the first thing we've got to say uh, is Liv jagrell from sister sin has announced her solo album to nobody's surprise, I think. No, I think we all saw that coming. She had been posting, you, you know, uh, hints about it long before we started getting clips from the studio. And her new band is called Live Sin. And that album, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's coming out within the next couple months because I remember seeing that we have a new uh, KXM, a new Overkill, and a new Live Sin album. Let's see. It is coming out on the 28th of April, 2017, and the album is called uh, Follow Me. And the first song that was put out from the new album is called Let Me Out, and that's one that we linked to on our Facebook page, but you can you can certainly YouTube that, and you'll find that pretty easily. Um, and I would say the track itself got mixed reviews, but to me, it felt like it certainly had enough of the DNA of... Uh, Sister Sin, that, I, I, I mean, I was buying the album anyways. There's no question I'm going to pick up that album. It's not <laughs> yeah. even a question, because I want to support the fact that she's continuing to right. make music. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like, it's it's got that DNA there. It's just a little bit different. It wasn't as um, heavy or hardcore as most of the Sister Sin stuff. It was kind of on their lighter side of the spectrum, and so I'll be interested to see what the rest of the album kind of sounds like but live is live and she certainly sounds like she sounded in sister sin so i'm i can't wait for that album that's one of my most anticipated albums of the year yeah i you're right that it sounds like her that's the thing it's unmistakably her voice because she has such a distinctive voice uh you know which we covered if anybody if any new listeners are wondering why we're talking about this in particular it's because we did a sister sin album in uh volume one i think it was wasn't it um, i think you are correct sir and uh, and we both you know really really liked it and then not long after they announced that they were splitting up and <laughs> we were very sad um, i was very sad too because i'd just seen them in concert and i almost didn't uh, go to that right. show and then i i was so happy that because i got to meet her and the band sounded awesome awesome and they kind of i thought were the best band on the second stage at the mayhem festival that year and then right after that after this u.s tour that they do it's over yeah out of nowhere and it was like whoa it, re- it really did seem to be out of nowhere didn't it yeah well a bit like the um you know this is the curse of thrashing out a bit like happened with the defiled not I know, long right? after we covered them as well uh, and that seemed to come out of the blue you know they they those guys were packing out live venues all over the place okay album sales weren't great but they were packing live venues out and then suddenly it was like yeah we're broke we're not making any money we've had enough and it was like oh shit um so yeah the the song that's been put out from the livson album is as you say it's it's you know it's not maybe perhaps not quite what you'd expect it's a little lighter it's a little slower and feels like it's attempting to be a bit sort of doom stroke deathier uh than Sister Sin, which I really wouldn't have expected. I would have thought, if anything, she would have gone 
further in the direction of the whole kind of, you know, glam. Yeah, the rock, Guns N' Roses and roll. glam strip right, scene. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and she, you know, if this track is representative, then she hasn't at all. So that's going to be interesting at the very least. I wasn't a huge fan of that track, but it's only one track, so, you know, we'll see. And like you say, it's worth getting just to support her anyway, because God knows yeah. we need more, you know, individualistic opinionated uh you know <laughs> metal loving people around there's bands seem to be splitting up or you know shutting down all over the place so uh yeah you know support people like that who are keeping on going yeah and i think that it has changed now to where we're seeing bands break up or we're seeing people do side projects and stuff like that and and back in the day we were very locked into this idea of this is the band and these are all people in this band and this is the way I listen to them is in this particular band. And nowadays you have uh, all of these side projects that are going on. And if you're not sampling them, you're really missing out. And that kind of segues into um, the KXM album that's coming out on March 17th, which I posted a link to their first uh, track, Scatterbrain. And that is George Lynch, Doug Pinnock, and Korn's Ray Luzier, who are part of that band. I That first album, I think, was 2014, and it was one of my albums of the year. Um, we haven't talked about it yet on this show, but that that's certainly a potential for an episode down the way. But they're, they're releasing a new album, and I didn't think we were going to ever get a second album from them, but that comes out in March. So you've got February is Overkill, March is KXM, April is Live Sin, and those are just three albums that I'm super excited about. So already, after an amazing 2016, of metal releases we're now kicking off 2017 really well so far and i know other people have posted on the facebook page about albums that they are super excited about but uh yeah this this year is already shaping up pretty awesome right well and those are just the ones that have been announced and that we know of um you know that's the other i mean i know that for example uh talking about side projects valenfire are currently in the studio recording a third album that's the side project of greg mcintosh the uh, guitarist and songwriter for Paradise Lost. Um, they're in the studio right now. Uh, and, you know, they're the sort of band that they'll, rec- I imagine that entire album will be recorded in like a week and then probably, uh-huh. you know, released like two weeks later. Um, so that, I am expecting that this year. Um, two of my favorite bands, Paradise Lost and My Dying Bride, are kind of, they haven't announced anything, I don't think, but they are kind of due for an album soon. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they put one out, if both of those put one out this year, because it's about, it's about right in their sort of regular cycle. Yep. Um, I know so, that yeah. Saxon is coming out with a new album this year, right, and after yep. seeing them in concert, I can't wait to get that album. Um, I know that Exodus is supposed to go into the studio fairly soon to start working on their follow-up to Blood In, Blood Out, which, wow. of course, we talked about on the show. And that was only last year, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think it was 2014 that it actually came out, but... Uh, oh, was it? Oh, right. But they, they, So, basically, they're at the mercy now of Slayer's touring schedule. And so, Gary Holt, I think, uh, obviously has a billion riffs that he could put on any given album, but he's they're going to be going back into the studio. And there were rumors about that maybe coming out before the end of the year. If I had to guess, I would say early... 2018 is when we'll see that album but just the fact that exodus is going back into the studio at some point in this first half of the year is super exciting to me um because that last album was amazing and i would be remiss if i did not mention and i don't know how much time you have had to spend with it yet but holy crap the new testament album 
Wow. Uh, I, I have only been able to listen to it a couple of times. And I Good wasn't. Lord. I, I, I mean, yeah, I. The first time I listened to it, I was like, okay, that's a solid album. But, oh, it is a solid album. It, right, but I haven't been able to sort of, yeah, really devote some quality listening time to it. It's definitely, I have spent quite a bit of time with it, and it is definitely one of the best albums of last year. It might be the best album of last year for me. That's how good this album is. Holy crap. If you if you haven't listened to Testament or if you haven't caught up on the new album yet, uh, you need to get that album because it's amazing. Brotherhood of the Snake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, any New Testament album is, uh, you know, as we've said before, with these older bands, and especially with Chuck Billy having had, you know, that cancer scare 15 years ago or whatever, um, any new album from one of those classic bands these days is something you should treasure. But if anything, a bit like, I mean, maybe it's not really true of Slayer, obviously, but, you know, because of the death of, of Jeff Hanneman, but with a lot of those classic bands, it feels like, and band like Exodus, it feels like, if anything, as they've reached middle age, they're actually seem to have more energy and are, you know, more energized and more excited about doing stuff. And I'm not, I don't know whether that's a function of getting old and, you know, just not yeah. caring anymore, <laughs> as you and I have talked about before, you know, just not, not giving a shit anymore. Or whether it's this like, oh shit, we better do this now because we, you know, people are dropping dead all around us and we might be gone in five years time. Um, I think it's a combination of both of those things, right? Because first of all, you have these bands that they're, they're past the point of caring about what the larger populace thinks about them. You know what I mean? They're, they're right, past the right. point they're of playing never that have, game. Yeah, exactly. yeah, Testament, and uh, long past the time when they ever might get in the Hot 100. <laughs> Bobby Blitz was just talking about that from Testament the other day, you know, when they were talking, because they, they always bring up the Big Four to him. Like, oh, the Big Four, and do you ever think it'll be the Big Five? And he said, look, the Big Four is the Big Four because of record sales. It's not necessarily because of their contributions to what metal was, even though they're all very important, those bands are the big four because they're the ones that pack the stadiums. They're the ones that have sold the albums and stuff like that. So so for some of the other bands, they haven't sold as many albums, and that's why they're not considered to be part of the big four. But he went on to say that, you know, that that's something that we stopped caring about a long time ago. If we're able to continue doing what we're doing and uh, make the kind of music that we want to make, that's the most important thing. And I, I do think it's a combination of you're getting older, you don't give a crap what other people think, you also know that you only have a finite number of albums that you're going to be able to put out in your creative lifetime. Yep. And uh, and I also think, as we've talked about before, it's about knowing what you're doing. And that's what I love about the albums that we're getting from some of these bands now that we grew up with, is that they just know what the hell they're doing. And when you get in these albums, you can just hear it in in the composition. You can hear it in how tight they are together. You can When it all comes together, it's just a band that... They've been doing this for a long time. They know exactly what they're doing and they are executing. And that to me is like watching a great sports team execute on the court or on the field or on the ice or something like that. When you just see a band that is just locked in and we've been getting albums from bands that are locked in and they're bands that we have grown up loving and they're just so dialed in right now that it's a joy to listen to the albums. Absolutely. I mean, there's always a danger with that, that it could become stage you know the danger when you sure. get that to that level is that you're not doing anything interesting because you are literally just you know going over the same old ground again and again but i think certainly with exodus and testament have deftly avoided that um you know whether that's just down to quality of songwriting and personnel or whether it's because you know bands do have 
uh, especially as they when they've been around a while, they start to have people coming in and out of the bands, you know, new blood coming in. I saw an interview from a while ago. I only just saw it this week, but it was it's a, a relatively old interview with Tom Aria talking about um, getting Paul Bostaff back in Testament and, of course, Gary Holt, uh, sorry, in Slayer, and, of course, getting Gary Holt in there yep. um, after Jeff Hanneman died. And he was saying, you know, the question was, like, did you feel that there's a different energy? And, he's, and he said, yeah, of course there is. You know, it's uh, especially with Paul having been in the band once, gone and then coming back he feels like he's got something to prove gary's right. got nothing to prove but of course he brings you know a different sensibility to to the second guitar than jeff did and so yeah you know it, it's inevitable and i mean obviously that's a tragic circumstance in which to have to replace a band member but that sort of thing can be the factor that keeps a long-running band interesting oh absolutely and you know i i just can't wait for the day that they let Gary Holt start really contributing to the songs on a Slayer album, because that that album is going to be the best album that Slayer has put out in a very long time. So, <laughs> I, because he he is basically like they just have a diamond there that they're not taking advantage of. You know, he comes in and he does his job, and he is fantastic. I've seen him a couple times live now, and he is amazing live. He he brings an energy that. Uh, was just not present in Slayer before in terms of his stage presence, and he relishes the opportunity to play those songs the way they're meant to be played. But that dude is just a riff machine. He's like uh, Peterson from Testament. Like, right. He has one million riffs in his head at any given point in time, and if you open that up and you let him start throwing some of those out there, it's going to be amazing. But the, you know, the flip side of that is whatever he doesn't get to contribute to Slayer, all that gets poured right back into Exodus, which is his baby. And, right. you know, when you listen to the freaking riffs on that last album, they're just They were amazing. Insane. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's how I feel about the New Testament album with, with Peterson, because he pretty much wrote everything on that new album. And the riffs are just brutal. They're, yeah. they're brutal. Just, just uh, what a great finish to the year for metal and what a great start to this year so far. Absolutely. Uh, just uh, to quickly sort of add something that was in that interview, because it was, it was after they'd recorded Repentless, and uh, apparently Gary Holt recorded his entire, because all he did in this on the studio version was solos, you know, where yep. Jeff would previously have done solos. He did the whole thing in a day. He He got into the studio at around noon, stayed there till eight or nine in the evening, and then flew home. <laughs> Oh, that doesn't surprise like it's that is freaking like, awesome. That that is that is uh He said that uh Tom Aria said that he phoned in the next called in the next morning and said like that his wrists were fucking swollen and you know yep. it's like he's like, I'm gonna rest for a couple of days. But he yeah, but even so, that's amazing. He recorded the an entire album's worth of solos. Well in, and, a, in know, like we, eight hours. <laughs> we love Slayer. Slayer's amazing. But from a complexity standpoint what Gary does in Exodus in many especially from a soloing standpoint is to me a leap ahead of what you're usually getting from a Slayer guitar solo or you know a lot of their riffs so well, I feel we, like we've said before Slayer solos are just kind of just attack it at a million miles an hour and it's just chaos exactly yes and, and Gary Holt can do that and does do that and has done that on Exodus songs as well but he's he's amazing so, like, that doesn't surprise me that he could come in and just belt out those tracks. And and also, again, like you said with uh, with Bostaff, like, he doesn't seem like a guy who feels like he has something to prove, but he wants to make sure for the longtime Slayer fans that they know 
look, I understand th- I'm not trying to replace this guy's legacy yeah, when I come into right. a legendary band like this, but make no mistake, you're not, this isn't a step down. <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're getting, you're getting the full experience here. Like you're, you're getting so, someone stepping into this band who know it's like with, uh, with Megadeth when they get a guy like Kiko Larrero, like a, Chris Broderick was an amazing guitar player, but Kiko Larrero brings something different to that band. And he doesn't have to worry about living up to that legacy or Marty Friedman's legacy or anything like that, because what he's bringing into that band, he, he knows what he can do. Right. At the very least, it's a step sideways and nothing exactly. less. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not a step down. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, as you say, it's, yeah, looking forward to 2017. There's a lot of good stuff due out. And, you know, frankly, in these uh, times that we're living in, we could all do with a bit of, uh, a bit of good metal to lift our spirits. <laughs> Boy, and I'll tell you, we got some really good feedback on the death episode, which was the last episode that oh, we, yes, did we did yeah. of the show. Uh, and I'm not going to read them all because the thread is super long on the Facebook page, but I'll just give you a couple of little tidbits there. Um, let's see. Tony Ownsworth said, well, now this was indeed right up my alley as someone who was into a handful of death metal albums around 1990 to 92. And he said, obituary, deicide and bolt thrower. Uh, he said, but never listen to any death. I'm now kicking myself because this is so much better than what I was listening to at the time. Back then, I was more interested in the shock value. And he puts in parentheses, my mom thought I was being sick in my room when she heard me playing the first Deicide album. <laughs> uh, and without my more recent prog leanings, Genesis, Gentle Giant, and most importantly, Cardiacs, he said, I doubt I would have appreciated the odd time signatures as much. But now... Suffice to say that you've scored your first win in making me buy my first album from the podcast that I did not already own, and I'm listening to it at 7.38 on the train to work. Yay! So that, that to me, is uh, that's exactly what we want to hear. Victory. Uh, let's see who else we had here. Uh, Lenny Reed said, there isn't a damn thing wrong with that production. <laughs> and he's, of course, talking about the fact that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was talk of the remastered version versus yeah. the original version, and we, we discussed the original version. Um, not the remastered version. Andrew Salmon said, I enjoyed that more than I thought I would. I've always found most death metal I've been exposed to a bit dull and samey, but this was a different story. Complexity, depth, and actual tunes. It's not going to make for frequent play, but I'll definitely come back to it and check out the following album. Uh, Kenneth White said, another great podcast, but this album was a miss for me. I liked the more groove melodic death metal parts, but the prog noodling and the jazz bass were just not for me. He said, oh, well, I've had a great hit rate this this season looking forward to the bonus (laughs) album. Um, Let's see who else. Robert Eckloff said, if you like your death metal progressive and complex, check out Atheist. Their second album, Unquestionable Presence, released in 1991 and is a masterpiece. Uh, let's see what else. Dan Davidson, a uh, great episode from one of my favorite bands. To those unaware, Chuck did a side project called Control Denied. It was more of a prog metal, power metal sound. It was released in 99. It's basically the last album Chuck put out before he died. Uh, I yeah, had never con- heard that. Did you hear that, Anthony? Yeah, Control Denied is, um, d- d- he, Chuck Schuldner actually once said that Control Denied is basically what he wished he sounded like like when he was doing vocals in death because it, it had a, a another vocalist he didn't uh-huh. do the vocals he just wrote the songs and, and played guitar uh, and it was very much his band but yeah he wasn't the front man as such as he is with death and uh, you know and, and he was very aware that he's not a traditional <laughs> singer right. um but i must say that it wasn't i've only heard the album a, a couple of times and it just didn't really grab me it wasn't really for me um chuck's vocals for me were actually a big part of of the death sound 
and part of that appeal, I think, because he was... Yeah, no, he wasn't a traditional vocalist and he wasn't the greatest singer in the world, but they were so distinctive. You know, much like Lemmy in Motorhead, they're so distinctive right. that r- regardless of their Sometimes sort of, it just fits. Yeah, regardless of their technical quality or whatever, yep. it, you just, you know, it all clicks together and you're like, yeah, this sounds fucking great. Um, yep. So yeah, Control Denied, it was it was an interesting side project and I, under, you know, I understood that what he was sort of trying to do, but yeah, it just didn't really click for me. Scott Parker Hall said, Scream Bloody Gore was my first death album. There's not one album by them that I don't like, so I really enjoyed this episode. I totally like it when you guys get off track for a bit and talk about influences and the likes. Keep it up. Very cool. Uh, And then Darren Gleaton, this was a funny one. The riff on Nothing Is Everything Alone is enough to make it my favorite track in the album, and with Trapped in a Corner, a close second. And I totally see where Brian's coming from with his Pantera comment. (laughs) And then you jumped in and said, wait... I thought I made yeah, the that Pantera comparison. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that was kind of funny, but uh, awesome feedback. I love the idea that people can't tell us apart. I mean... <laughs> you know, we sound very similar. Yeah. So it's sometimes it's hard to remember who it is that uh, that is talking. The funny thing is, my short-term memory is so terrible that I that doesn't even... I didn't even blink an eye when I read that. I was like, oh, I must have said something about Pantera. But when we talked about it, I totally remember you bringing it up because I hadn't even thought of that. And, uh, and as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, um, or I could be misremembering that completely. No, no, that that is exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But great feedback on that episode. And again, uh, if you're on Facebook, feel free to jump into that group, but you can always hit us up on Twitter as well. And if you're a a patron, you can go to the Patreon page and leave comments on every single episode. Um, you can also email us as well. So we've been getting great feedback and that is, that's my favorite thing as we talk about on every episode of this community of listeners is that the discussion just keeps on going and going and going right now we have uh one of your buddies is totally into glam metal now and so we have a great (laughs) glam metal thread going on uh and david richardson has been posting pictures of all the glam metal albums that he's been picking up most of which i either owned or still own to this day and so it's just been like a continuous treasure trove for me but uh dijon halizan posted the new obsessed single on our facebook page so even if if the particular episode that we're talking about doesn't resonate with you musically, there is suggestions and videos and links and and all kinds of stuff being linked on the Facebook page all the time. Um, so, man, if you're ever looking for something to listen to, there's a daily discussion on the Facebook page about what you could be listening to. Absolutely. And one of the things, and we've both said this before, one of the things that I love about that is that because we are not a sort of specialist podcast if you like like we're not only about death metal or we're not only about new metal or we're not only about prog or you know whatever um because we try to cover a fairly broad range of stuff on the show the facebook group is also really broad you know it's not it's not like you only get suggestions for yeah you know like modern death or you know black metal or whatever it's it's a really really broad spectrum of stuff that people post going hey i think this album's great give it a listen uh and i I think that is brilliant because that really reinforces you know something that you and i i know but you know something a belief that we share and i would hope people listening to the show if they you know if people are listening to lots of episodes of this show then i have to figure they probably share that belief that you know as we've said before this is a broad church and there is no reason to limit yourself to just listening to one particular sort of style or subgenre 
of metal, you know, broaden your horizons and, yeah, you know, give things a listen. You never know. My favorite posts, as we just talked about, are the ones where someone's like, I didn't think I would like this at all. And it turns out I did. Yeah. And and then they go down the rabbit hole of checking out a complete genre of music or, um, you know, that that continually happens with me on this show. Because, again, my roots were very much 80s glam and hair metal and big four thrash metal. I mean, that that was where I came from in the 80s. And so and new wave of British heavy metal. And so those things are all what I knew as metal kind of growing up. And so as we got into this show, there's, there's been a ton of stuff that I now seek out that a couple of years ago wouldn't even be on my radar. Not because I thought I wouldn't like it. It just, it was not even anywhere in my thought process. And so th- this is hopefully a show and in, in a, in a group of listeners where, um, you know, once you spend a little time with us, your, your musical horizons will be broadened a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I, I would certainly hope so. Um, so yeah, and that, uh, the URL for that, by the way, is, uh, the Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, and you can find our Twitter and email and all that stuff at thrash it out podcast.com. All right. So <clears throat> let us, uh, move on to Opeth then and the album. And yeah, I mean, as we said at the start, let's just sort of briefly say that I, I was aware of Opeth. I'd heard of them, but basically knew nothing at all. Uh, except that they were a European band with, you know, sort of a fancy logo and doomy-looking album covers, but I'd never knowingly heard anything by them. Um, and I don't know why that is. Like, you'd think, you know, a, oh, a doomy European band in the early 90s, you'd think, or <laughs> mid-90s, that that would, you know, that I would then go, oh, I'll check them out. But I don't know why, but there's some for some reason I never did. Um, cause they started in 95, first album was 1995, an album called Awkward, sorry, Orchid, as in the flower, uh, Blackwater Park is their fifth album, um, that we're talking about today. So yeah, you know, they were kind of, they clearly started around that time when I was really, really heavily into metal, um, and, uh, you know, and sort of into the metal scene, I should say more specifically. Uh, but for some reason, I don't know, I just never checked them out. For me, I think they were, they came along at a time where I maybe, I was very much sticking to my 80s metal at that point in time. So, you know, 95, I was, I think, a junior in college. And so I had, and of course, grunge had already come along. And so a lot of the bands that I was listening to in the 80s were either dormant or non-existent at that point in time. And the bands that I still clung on to, like Megadeth and, and Slayer and Anthrax and those guys, um, you know, they were in transition periods as well. And But I was still hanging on to that music. So I wasn't really discovering a ton of new stuff at that time. And Opeth was a band that I just completely... I never, never even really spent any time with at all. And at that point in time, if you would have said Opeth and Typo Negative to me, I couldn't tell you the difference between those two bands. I uh, honestly, could, I, <laughs> wow. I would get them. I would get them completely uh, mixed up in my head. You know, I knew I knew so little about either one of those bands at that particular time. And so, um, so it was interesting to come to this album and this band with almost a complete blank slate. Right. Oh, that's crazy. That's like, I don't know. That's like mixing up. Pantera and Anthrax or something. <laughs> right. like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crazy. Yep. Um, so yeah, this album was from 2001, uh, which I think is probably going to be a factor in, you know, sort of how we talk about it and how certainly how I reacted to it. Um, I uh, very specifically 
listened to this album without doing any research at first. Uh, like the first few times I listened to it, I didn't, you know, look them up on Wikipedia. I didn't look up who was in the band. Uh, and I was only vaguely aware of like when it was recorded because uh-huh. I just wanted to, to take it, you know, as it came. Um, which was an interesting experience because, um, I mean, you know, cards on the table, I will say this album is for me, uh, how can I put it? It's, I hate saying meh, but it, it really is kind of meh. Like there's nothing terrible about it. There are some good bits. There are some not so good bits, but it, uh, it engenders no emotional reaction in me whatsoever. Um, and I can't really put my finger on why uh, it was really odd. And so after that sort of initial, you know, listening to it two or three times and like this album is just doing nothing for me. Then I started looking into them, uh, and reading up a bit and I came to the conclusion. And this is what I said to you, uh, a few days ago. Um, oh no, it was more than a few days ago now, wasn't it? But when we were talking about scheduling, recording this, and what I realized was that I had always been told and sort of given the impression that Opeth were a doom metal band. And, you know, everybody said, oh, you'd like Opeth, you like doom metal, you like uh-huh. this band. And so I was like, okay, and that's the mentality that I went into it with. And I realized once I actually did my research and read a bit more about them, I was like, oh, oh, this isn't a doom metal album at all. They're not a doom metal band. They're a prog metal band. And the minute... I thought that the minute I had that realization, I went and listened to it again and it still doesn't really do a lot for me, Uh but I appreciated it so much more just coming at it with that different mindset because it really isn't a doomy album at all. But if you approach it as like, oh, okay, no, actually this is just prog. Just, you know, they're not trying to be my dying bride or whatever, just, you know, just appreciate it as a prog album i suddenly yeah did appreciate it a hell of a lot more yeah this was an album for me that uh i had a little bit of trouble getting into at first and that was where our conversation was sort of generating from and then as luck would have it or my misfortune of having to go through a work week from hell this week where i was traveling uh three hours to both ways in a car each day to travel to this um thing that i had to do for work I found myself in the car and able to just really spend some time with this album over a few days very intensely. And what I did that was much different than what I usually do because uh, because I was in the car for so long is I took my recorder that I used to do interviews with for, for other podcasts and I made notes as I was listening to oh, wow. the actual album. And so that resulted in a hell of a lot of notes for this album, by the way. But it was very interesting because I... I really dug into each track, and my reaction was similar to yours in that I would say that overall, this was an album that didn't, uh, I didn't love it, and I didn't hate it. But as I realized, the more I listened to it, and the and the thoughts that I had on it, it made me think about a lot of things related to how I listen to music, and how I perceive music, and any album that makes me examine the way that I think about music is a good album. So so that kind of, as I came out the other end of it, was like, this album made me think a lot about music. And so that that means that, it, that there's a lot of value there uh, for this album. And I do enjoy it overall. And we as we get into the individual tracks, we can talk about it. But 
Um, but there are some pretty big issues I have with it as well. But yeah, I was a complete blank slate going into this. Um, I found it difficult to get into, and then I just went into a completely different gear and, and deep dove into it with, you know, sort of annotations along the way. And that worked out really well. I might actually try to do that with some of our albums in volume three, because I found that I had much more coherent thoughts about specific pieces of each song when I was actually annotating as I went along. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, bringing it back to what I just said, that was, you told me that you were going to be spending a lot of time in your car for work. And that was when I said, cause I was actually going to save that for the episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was going to sort of spring it on you. Um, but that's because to be honest, I actually, I assumed that you would be more into this than me to start with. So when you said, you know, I'm not really getting into this, I was like, okay, I'm not going to save it. Then I'll just say, and that was when I said to you, put thoughts of like Duma and, and what have you out of your mind and just think of it as a prog album. And, well, so uh, first I agree with you. I do, I do agree with you that, uh, that this album is very proggy. And the thing that this album made me think about is why I wasn't into it more. And that was the question I was sort of kicking around in my head as I was listening to it is what is it that is keeping me from really clicking with this album? Is it that I haven't listened to it enough, which is often the case is I just need to spend more time with an album or is it something else? And so as we go through the songs, like I had particular kind of big picture thoughts about what is going on with this album and why maybe it didn't click with me so well, because there is some, ridiculously fantastic musicianship on this album um oh no question about that yeah phenomenal compositions as well but there's also some choices that i think create barriers for the listener so i'm interested to kind of see if you felt the same way about some of that stuff but uh, okay okay but i I would say i would say for me it's i mean speaking overall it's just that there's a lack of um not even a lack of dynamics because it goes from like, you know, sort of quiet to loud quite often, you know, they make that transition from clean to growling and all that sort of thing on a fairly regular basis. Um, but there's a lack of <sighs> choruses and yeah, direction and, you know, sort of bits to sing along to. And I'm not talking, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not expecting a Def Leppard album here, but <laughs> you know, even, Am I right, dying because Bride Def Leppard's amazing. We have already established that. Go listen <laughs> course, to the High yes. and Dry episode and you'll, you'll see that. Um, but but even a My Dying Bride album or a Paradise Lost album or, you know, the, my favourite like band, who, you know, people say are doomy and dirgy and what have you, but they still have, there's something about their songwriting, for me, yeah. anyway, that makes me want to sing along and, you know, sort of air drum along and what have you. And uh-huh. there's n- almost nothing on this album that does that. For me so i mean yeah we can get into detail and i'm sure we a will, couple but- things that i want to throw out there and i and i don't these may sound overly reductive or overly negative but the but two concepts that kept uh ringing in my head one of them you you will immediately know why is uh saint anger from metallica mm-hmm. um clearly because of the song length of many of the uh, tracks in this album yeah and the other thing that i kept thinking to myself and this is a comic book term is it, this album feels like it was written for the trade <laughs> i felt like there were several and there's only eight songs on this album but i felt like over half of them there was a period of there was a time mark that was the goal 
And right, I felt like that right. goal was 10 minutes a lot of the time. Like, this song needs to be 10 minutes long. And so there were things that were done to get that song to a particular time mark that were wholly unnecessary. And that was a real stumbling block for me with the, and, and I made annotations on specific tracks as I went through, but that as I kept listening to the album, as I listened to it a few times and as I kept thinking about it, like that just kept coming back to me is that, you know, in, in comics, we often talk about storylines that are written for the trade because they're spread out over six issues Being when padded, in reality yeah. they could have been done in three and would have been a lot leaner and a lot more uh, punchy. And, uh, and that's what this album felt like a lot for me. Like, I feel like you could cut a solid 20 minutes off of this album and not lose any of the songs and every single song would be better off for it. That was one of my overall takeaways for, for that. So, so that was just kind of a couple overall themes, but as I mentioned, another overall theme, which I thought was very positive is that this album made me think about how I think about music Mm. and that was pretty cool. So yeah. and there there are parts that I really love and there's a couple tracks on this album that I really do love. Um but yeah, my overall takeaway was feels like it was written a bit for the trade. Yeah. Yeah. It's well it's an hour 8 minutes long. Uh so, you know, 68 minutes with eight tracks and one of those is a an instrumental that's less than two minutes long. Correct. So right. yeah, the other seven tracks are crazy long. Yep. Um, and you know, nothing wrong with that in principle. I, you know, as we've established before on the show, I am much more a fan of long songs than you overall. Uh, you yes, know, I, I have in principle, no problem with 12, 13, 14 minute songs. Uh, but they have to be, good and interesting songs, you know, for those 12, 13, 14 minutes. And yeah, I think some of these, I agree with you, you know, most of these tracks could be chopped in half and really not lose a lot in terms of effectiveness or impact, you know, as opposed to, uh, I mean, even you can get into the sort of complexity where you get a My Dying Bride track that might have like, you know, 18 different riffs in it. And that's how they keep it interesting over 15 minutes. Or you can go to a neurosis track that might be 10 minutes long and actually only have four riffs, but the way they structure them and the way they arrange them is what keeps it interesting. Um, this, I don't know, just, and it, you know, we should say this is only the band's fifth album. So uh, they'd only been recording for six years at this point. So it's still right. fairly early in their history. So, you know, let's not rag on them too much and, for that sort of thing. But And this album was a departure for them because yes. this was the first time they had worked with an outside producer. So right. you had someone coming in, uh, Steve Wilson, who had been with uh, Porcupine Tree, who was coming in. And anytime you have someone else come into your creative process, that's a big shift. Yep. And, well, and from what I read, it Tree, wasn't a negative thing at all. But um, oh no no they still they still work with him they're still like great friends with him and stuff. Porcupine Tree, of course, are a very you know well known modern prog band and and are very prog. So uh, I mean that was another thing that clued me in. Like oh hang on, <laughs> this is prog. Right. Um, uh, and it was also the first album where they really sort of shifted into this extreme proggy direction that I uh-huh. gather their modern stuff, you know, has continued to explore. And they've done done an anathema, uh, as we say, in the sort of Peaceville Records fan group, uh, which is like anathema started out as a sort of death doom band, and within two records they turned into Pink Floyd. It was uh-huh. uh, it was quite extraordinary. Uh, and it would appear that Opeth, I gather, 
have done a similar thing where there's almost no death metal left in what they do now. Well, uh, because, and for those of you who are participating in the Queensryche drinking game, there are parallels to Queensryche <laughs> 2. In the, uh, so there's your Queensryche mention for this particular uh, <laughs> episode. But there are definitely some uh, there are definitely some parallels to Queensryche's musical evolution in what I have seen and read from Opeth as well. Yeah, and you know, as again, as we've said, nothing wrong with absolutely. bands evolving. You know, that's good. For sure. That's good. Absolutely. Um, I have a couple of interview snippets that I pulled. Oh, go um, So, uh, Mikhail Ackerfelt, who is the main man with uh, Opeth, Metal Rules interviewed him in 2001 around the time the album came out. Uh, they asked him, "Do you see yourself progressing in a definite direction, or are you just going where the music takes you?" He says, depends. For the last couple of albums, we haven't done much touring, so I've had a lot of time in between recordings to write uh, before we put, so therefore we put out an album each year. I pretty much let the music take whatever it, whatever shape it wants to go in. I don't think much about it. I just write. We use the stuff that sounds good. Uh, they also asked him, it sounds like your clean vocal style is improving with each album. Is that something that you've worked on, or does it just happen with experience? And he said, I don't practice anything, and we don't rehearse. I never do any kind of practicing between recordings. I just kind of talk myself into getting better since the last album. <laughs> so I thought that that's an interesting take on uh, on how you uh, how you hone your skills. Uh, yeah. He was also interviewed by Team Rock, and uh, they talked a little bit about their origin and sort of their evolution. And this is where a Queensrÿche mention comes up. Uh, the guy says to him uh, occasionally, and this is again with Michael uh, uh, Mikhail. The interviewer says, occasionally there's a band who breaks through and revels in being thought of as slightly more intelligent than their peers. Uh, he says, it didn't do Queensryche any harm in the 80s, and now Sweden's Opeth appear to be succeeding with the same kind of intentions. And his response is, I fucking hate that phrase, thinking man's metal, because that's attributed to Opeth sometimes. Uh, he says, it makes us sound superior. We're more intelligent than any other metal band. Whoever came up with that term might have thought they were doing us a favor, but it actually could have done us some harm and put people off. Um, so it's interesting that they're thought of as one of those bands that is like smart people metal. Um, because we we often you yeah. know, hear bands thrown into that category, thinking man's metal. He said, we started out in 1990 just as just another melodic Swedish metal band inspired by Iron Maiden. That's certainly the way we sounded on our debut album, 1995's Orchid. But then we threw everything out and began all over again in a musical sense. You can definitely hear the change in approach on the second record, which is Morning Rise, from 1996. By then, the progressive and psychedelic influences that we are known for these days had come into their own, and our songs were a lot longer. I'd say that only Edge of Sanity and maybe Catatonia were doing anything similar in Sweden. He said the problem we had was a business one. In the first decade, we released four albums, but only did one tour. He says, I mean, one tour in 10 years. We knew there were loads of people who'd love what we did if only they got the chance to hear it. So the frustration was that the label we were on didn't seem to be getting us out there. But with Blackwater Park, that changed because we signed to Music for Nations in Britain, and that definitely made a difference. He said, musically, though, I don't think we've altered at all with this album. It may seem that way because we got so much more attention, but if you listen to the album before, 1999 Still Life, he says it's in the same style. So I always think it's interesting to pull those uh, quotes from the time of the album coming out right, and see yeah, sort yeah. of what they have to say about that particular moment in time. I think it's, uh, I, I agree with him wholeheartedly about the whole thinking man's metal thing, because that's just, all that does is insult everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's know? the same thing as saying, well, that's not metal. You know, right. when we talk about glam metal or hair metal or whatever, it's, it's you're just putting up a barrier. Right, or saying that metal normally 
isn't for people who think, you know, and that metal, it's that stereotypical idea that metal is just full of knuckle-dragging thickos who, you know, bang two rocks together and call it music. It's, uh, It's just such a horrible stereotype, and yet all that does is perpetuate it. Yeah, and as he said, that label is often applied by critics or or you know fans who are trying to elevate the band and say, well, if you if you really like your metal, you know, complex, then you want to yeah. kind of. It's like it's like there's people who um, uh-huh, I, you get this in uh, fiction novels and comics actually. People who say, oh, it transcends the genre, like some science fiction novels. Say, well, right. it's science fiction, but it transcends the genre. Right, what they actually shitty, mean is science fiction is shitty, but this is good. Right, exactly. Yeah. What they actually mean is this is a science fiction novel that I actually like. Therefore, right. it can't possibly be proper science yeah. fiction. It's, no, and I've fallen into that trap before as well. I mean, it, it, when when we talk about Megadeth, right? Like, I like. I'm very careful to to think about the way that I talk about Megadeth because the thing that attracted me to Megadeth was that it felt like nerdy metal to me. You know what I mean? The right. complexity. But it's but what I'm really saying is it's the more prog elements of Megadeth that uh, blended with what I knew at the time as sort of thrash and. And, well, and, uh, the t- and the technical proficiency elements. I don't think yes. there's anything. You know, th- I mean, that's something that is. You know, it is absolutely true to say right. that rock and roll and, you know, certain uh, genres of, of heavy metal do not require, by you know, do not per se require an enormous amount of technical proficiency and musicianship. Um, you know, and I don't think that's not insulting because that's sure. absolutely true. That's part of the attraction of metal for a lot of people, myself included. Um, but, you know, so, but then you get bands like Megadeth who are so technically proficient and so you know sort of such amazing musicianship i don't think there's anything wrong with necessarily using that as kind of say look if you like really really complex you know technical well-played virtuoso you know metal this is your band i don't think that's insulting to people at all because the sort of people who don't like that stuff like me i'm not going to be insulted by that (laughs) right but then by the same token if i say well you know it's a smarter brand of metal um, right that's that, different that, that's yeah, where so yeah. it is it, a lot of time it comes down to you know how you're how you're trying to describe it or elevate that or, or describe what attracts you to it because i um because you, you nailed it. it it's the complexity which is funny because i'm not a humongous prog fan myself which uh, ob, which you know is associated with um technical with proficiency in a lot of ways yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah and so you know but but when you take sort of your um, stock thrash heavy metal, and you add a bit of that in. That to me is what what attracts me to Megadeth is that they're they're just prog proggy enough to be right in my sweet spot. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I do, I do. <laughs> um, and this is, I mean, yeah. You know, we've been saying this is basically a prog album, and um, I, I'm not the the lead guy is very technically proficient uh, i call him the lead guy there because i was going to say i think and i don't know i'm not swedish but i do know a few swedish people and i pro- if i had half a brain i would have asked them this before we started recording but i didn't i think you actually pronounce his name michael uckerfeld um but i could be completely wrong and i'm almost certainly going to forget that myself so i'm going to say I, that know. that's much closer to it than probably what i said <laughs> <laughs> well, but I don't know. So, I mean, Ackerfeld is, you know, we'll just and go with that. And I should be ashamed of myself because my wife's name is Svea, S-V-E-A, and her whole family is Swedish. So they oh, really? I probably could have, uh, you know, she's not first generation So we, anything, we both but, failed there. Yeah, we both failed. Uh, so we, well, I'm not going to let her family listen to this episode. 
but yeah, he is very technically proficient. I mean, that that's clear from because he is the lead guitarist, the singer, the songwriter, the sole songwriter, I believe. Um, you know, and basically the driving force behind this band. It's his Opeth is him and right. a rotating cast of backing musicians. Uh, much in the same way that Megadeth is Dave Mustaine and it a pretty rotating much is cast of musicians. Day, yeah, you know, at this yeah. stage for sure. Um, so, and you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but, uh, to do that does take a certain type of musician. And it is often the very technically proficient musicians who can, you know, basically you could give this guy a drum machine and he could record an album by himself. Right. Uh, you know, and that's the kind of, uh, I think that comes across in the music, I mean, that's something that, as I say, I first listened to this the first few times without really researching them. But the impression I got was like, oh, okay, this is a, a band, whoever, that is clearly really, really into being, uh, you know, great musicians. And it's sort of, you know, single-minded, arty compositions. And then when I did my research, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that that's exactly what this guy is into. Uh, and that's, as I say, that's not a value judgment, but sure. just kind of, okay, well, I got that right, at least. What I didn't realise was that it was one guy. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I thought maybe they were like, you know, a guitarist and a singer and maybe the bassist, but no, it's, it's one guy basically leading the charge for the entire, uh, you know, recorded output of this band. Um. So, all right, well, let's get into the tracks then. Let's do it. Uh, So we start with uh, what I think actually is the longest track on the album. Um, Is that right? Is it? Uh, No, I think the last one is the longest. Oh, is Blackwater Park the longest track? Yeah, I think Uh, that's 1208. I think this is the Leper Affinity, right? Which is 10 and a half almost, 1023. Yeah. Yeah, so this is track one, the Leper Affinity. but certainly a bookend of the longest tracks on the album. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, there's this, there's uh, another plus 10 minute track in the middle yep. of the album. And then it finishes, yeah, with a 12 minute track. So, um, uh, and yes, as I said, this is the, the leper affinity and t- to open, you know, as we've said before, to open with a, an over 10 minute track, that's ballsy. But <laughs> it, it is super ballsy. And here's the thing. When I started listening to this album, I didn't look at any of the times of the tracks, right? Like I when I say clean slate, like it was total clean slate oh, going wow, into right. this album. So I had no idea what their sound was like. I hadn't I hadn't watched any videos, nothing. 
uh, and I went in and just started listening to it. And this is a long intro song. <laughs> that's that's for darn sure. Yes, um, although I would say the first couple minutes of the song, I really, really dug. Like it, m- my first take uh, as the album opened was, oh, okay, I, I kind of like these guys. I like I like what I'm hearing here. It feels like it comes out swinging, and there's not a great deal of time from the intro to the beginning of the vocals, which as I went back and listened to this album multiple times, what I find fascinating about this song is the way the first half of the song goes is not indicative of anything on the rest of the album. Right. You have, you have a song that comes out swinging. You have a song that feels really heavy right from the beginning. You have a song that uh, it's not long to get into the vocals and everything sounds really tight. Yep. I, I agree. And also, um, I mean, the the riff per se isn't really anything special in the, you know, the first, like, you know, few minutes riff, um, but it does have some nice chord progressions totally. behind it, uh, you know, and quite unusual. And again, you know, this is actually, or the first few minutes of this track anyway, are actually some of the most doomy bits on the album. For sure. And I, th- I think that also contributed to my you know, confusion in uh-huh. my view uh, throughout because, yeah, it's got some lovely Doomy style chord progressions and, you know, the sort of the growling, uh, which I mentioned, I think it was last episode when I, I sort of said about, uh, you know, slick growlers, as it were, uh-huh. as opposed to people who feel like, feel like they mean it. And this guy does feel a bit kind of slick. A bit, yeah, a bit a bit slick, a bit like doesn't really, you know, he's growling but he doesn't actually sound particularly angry. Um, that didn't that didn't really necessarily throw me, but what threw me about this song. So up until about 4 minutes and 45 seconds, which is when it then goes into the clean singing and the acoustic. Yeah. Um, it's almost exactly halfway through, yeah. To me, that's where you end this song. This song <laughs> could have ended at, that could have been like that acoustic line that you start hearing at four forty five could have been the playout, and right. that song, that five minute song, would have been a killer opening tune for this album. So right up until that point, I'm in, and then we start to meander a little bit, and at that point, the clean vocals, especially like the the sort of uh, call and response piece of that, remind me a bit of um, Maynard from Tool. Uh, the, way, right, right. the way that 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 kind of uh, the production there, it's uh, the, the whole thing of like he's he's singing through a through a megaphone, you know, the, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, a bit of distortion in there. Yeah. I, I think I think part of the problem with the uh, acoustic guitar stuff is that it's just not a very interesting rhythm that he's playing on the acoustic guitar. Well, uh, and that's the thing is it's halfway through the song, so why do we need to go there when you've right. already established this song that was pretty kick ass? As we get into 445, and now we're going in a whole different direction, and that is a theme. Well, I don't, to me. yeah, it, it is absolutely, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, look at the typo negative uh, album that we did. You know, there's several songs that do that, uh, which is one of I think I don't want to say it's. I'm going to use a term barrier, but there's probably a better term for it. But that is one of the things that makes typo negative a little bit more inaccessible to me is those dramatic shifts that that is because and this was one of the things that this album made me think a lot about in terms of how i perceive music and what what sounds right to me is if the shift is too dramatic the song goes off the tracks for me and and this one isn't 
overly dramatic. I thought it was a little meandering. I didn't think it was stark contrast. And so it didn't lose me completely, but it just, my thought was like, I don't know why we're going over here when we were fine over here. <laughs> you know, like that, <laughs> yeah. that's like, we're, we're cool over here. I like where we are right now. I'm not sure what we're doing over here. It's kind of like you're walking your dog and they want to go off in another direction completely. And it's like, I, there's nothing really over there that's interesting. Let's come back over here. Um, and they do come back because at seven minutes, we come back to the main rift and we the rift yeah and we the, close dr- the that, drumming goes a bit jazzy doesn't it yeah yeah and we and we close the loop with that main riff again and at 8 minutes we could have ended the song for a second time <laughs> so so here we've we've had it 5 minutes and we've had it 8 minutes two uh prime musical opportunities to end this song and we don't we go on for another two and a half minutes from that point and so by the end of it at 10 minutes and 23 seconds, I'm looking forward to the song being over, and that's not a good sign. It's and not, so, no. Yeah, and so that's where I think, where it, I said the first half of the song to me is not indicative of the rest of the album at all, but the song as a whole is very indicative of the rest <laughs> of the album as a whole. Because it, it that is where, that's where it popped in my head. It's like, this feels like it's written for the trade. I feel yeah. like the goal here was 10 minutes, and we reached that goal, but with a lot of fluff that we didn't necessarily need to have. And there's a really great song in here that if we trim the edges a little bit, we could have been really dialed in at either five minutes or eight minutes. Yeah. Well, and as I said, I don't mind those dramatic shifts and, you know, shoving acoustic passages suddenly in the middle of, uh, you know, heavy tracks and what have you, as long as they're interesting. And my problem with that acoustic bit was that it just wasn't musically interesting the acoustic guitar guitar he's just finger picking up and down a scale yeah the riff that follows it is not you know interesting at all i um, agree with you and i think the next song evidences your point perfectly well, well, well hang on and then i was going to say and then when you when you get the piano outro which as you say starts like goes on for a couple of minutes at the end it's <laughs> do you know what it put me in mind of the lifetime movie of the week <laughs> it, that's really what it I was like this is generic this, dramatic music 101 right yeah yeah just like yeah. you know just pull it out of the archive library and yeah. stick that the on the title uh, not without my daughter just flashed in your head <laughs> <laughs> yeah <it's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> irreconcilable differences oh yeah. i think i've seen that one yeah. um yeah exactly i was like oh wow this is and you know he's swedish so he doesn't have that cultural reference necessarily sure um but at the same time you know it's still yeah it's just not that interesting uh the piano line you know it could be more unusual and it's not it's, interesting enough to justify the length of the song exactly and that's the problem is that right. it's it's not that there aren't fantastic elements here because as i said the first half of the song i'll even give you up to eight minutes i could i could take all that and i would still walk away from this song thinking that was a good opening track but at 10 minutes and 23 seconds, it is too watered down for me. And, it, yeah. and it, it washes out some of the better elements of the song because it took you so long to reach the finish line. Watered down is a really good way. Well done. That's a really good way of how I feel about a lot of the musical choices on this album is that, you know, with just a little shift here or there, it could have been so much more interesting and a bit uh-huh. more 
a bit more edgy, a bit more spiky, a bit more unusual. Uh, and, and it's not too much of it is from a sort of musical composition standpoint, quite safe, despite those dramatic uh-huh. shifts in dynamics. But the actual, once you've made that shift, the actual then musical passage that plays out is too often a bit safe. Not always. As I said, there are some good bits yep. on this album, and those are generally the more unusual and interesting musical uh-huh. bits, in my opinion. But too much of it, I agree, is... Yeah, you're right, feels watered down as if it's just a bit too safe. I feel like they took your advice for the second song in the album, which is Bleak. That song is nine minutes and 16 seconds, which at first glance, you would think, uh-oh, again, we're we're trying to hit that 10-minute mark, and does it justify that? And for me, this second song feels like it absolutely justifies its length. It may be my favorite song in the album. If if not my favorite, then 1 and 1A, one uh, you know, sort of in terms of favorite songs on the album, I think that it opens with a very sort of big... And sort of mysterious open vibe. It feels much more open than the first song, which I thought opened a little tighter. And so again, it's it's quite a contrast to that. I love the main riff. My only complaint about it is it felt like it was pushed back in the mix too much, and you only hear like half of it when when it sort of uh, descends. Where when it does that, that comes up a little bit. But the main part of that riff feels like it's pushed back into the mix too much. But it's a great mm-hmm. riff. Um, and the mix riff. overall, we should we should say that the sound mix overall on this album, I think, is actually is generally really good. Me too. If anything, I think the vocals are actually pushed back a little too much. I, I would have agree. liked to you like them to be a little louder, just pop a little bit more overall. But generally, and it, you know, again, given that this is their first album working with a new producer, I, I think the the overall mix is is pretty good. Um, you know, you can hear everything. Especially uh, the acoustics, else. man. The the acoustics. Uh, whenever there's acoustic guitar line, I feel like that sounds just super clean and really, yep, well represented in the mix. And here, um, I feel like the the main riff plus the clean vocals at like the three minute and thirty mark. I absolutely loved that. This this song to me felt like it was about a lot of different contrasts that worked very well together. 
Um, and it reminded me a bit of the Rush song, uh, Show Don't Tell, from their album Presto. And I'm not a huge Rush fan. That's literally one of probably the 10 Rush songs that are in my head at any you know given time in terms of my sort of music <laughs> Ten more collection. than me, dude. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big Rush fan at all. But I did like that uh, that Rush song. And anybody who knows that song, Show Don't Tell, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about in terms of the riff here. So it gave me a little bit of a Rush vibe. Um, I love the guitar solo at five minutes over the acoustics. And I just love the the tone of that guitar, the sort of muted um tone uh it's so so great and then the clean vocals when he's singing help me cure you and then the riff starts to grow behind it you know at the six minute mark when the crunch comes back in like to me as i'm listening to this second song uh, you know on my third or fourth time listening through the album i'm like this sounds like them doing what they do the best that they can do it on this album like this right. to me if if you were to say like show me a great example of what um what this band can do this is it the contrasts are there it doesn't feel bloated or wasted um it doesn't meander everything is working well off of one another like i, I just felt like this song if i was to point to one song on this album where i was like this is what i would love for more songs from them to sound like I think this captures it. I just felt like this song is where it all clicked. Well, in a uh, quite surprising turn up, actually, I agree entirely. Uh, <laughs> Holy uh, <laughs> cow, somebody timestamp it. I know. <laughs> Quick, call the Pope. Right? Um, th- th- yeah, this is the best track on the album, hands down. It the- has the best riff on the album. Um, like uh, the intro riff, yeah, is great, as you say, that whole, like the ringing chord and then the uh, wailing guitars over the top and then the descending scale, that's all great. But also the verse, the verse riff is really good with, again, like wailing guitars on top of the melody playing like these long, single, drawn-out notes and stuff. Yes. It's great. Such um, atmosphere. The middle eight is good. Um, it's not as good as the re- as the rest of the song, but it, it's, you know, with the clean stuff, it's good. Um, the solo is good, as you say. Uh, this, the, the middle eight, I've actually put a note, this wouldn't be out of place on a modern Anathema album. It really is. Like, uh-huh. if, you're, if you're listening to this, if you like this album and you like the acoustic bits, you should get into Anathema if you don't know them already, because really, dudes, <laughs> you, know, you know, you're in for a treat. Um, uh, I like the end. The coda, talking about typo negative, the, the, as you said, when it's sort of, when the crunch comes back in, this is a coda that is entirely different to the rest of the song. Yes. Um, and it ends with that really heavily over distorted guitar. As you say, this, even though it's nine minutes, this track, this is what I mean about, you know, if you make the right choices, totally. even a long track can yep. still work, even with those dynamic changes, because on this one, they got them all right. This is the changes work, the riffs work, the vocals work, the composition and the dynamics work. This is, yeah, you know, if only the rest of the album was as good yep. as this track, basically. It just feels like it is exactly how long it needs to be. Yeah. And that, and that, and it reinforced to me because, again, I, one of these things that this album did was make me think in a larger sense about what I like about different types of music and stuff like that. Like in general, I'm not a fan of super long songs. Uh, and what this reinforced to me is that, oh, it's not that I'm not a fan of long songs. I'm just very particular about they need to justify their existence at that yeah. at that length. Well, I mean, you know, look at uh, when we did Keeper of the Seven Keys. Yep. Uh, you know, the Halloween albums. And you said that, you know, the track Halloween 
on Keeper Part 1. Was Maybe the best like, long tune I've ever heard. Right, was one of your favourite tracks. And that's yep. 13 minutes long, for heaven's sake. So yep. it's you just got to make it interesting. <laughs> right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to have 20 riffs. I mean, we, again, when we were talking about this, um, I mentioned that the first track on The Angel in the Dark River, which is My Dying Bride's album after the one we covered, after Turn Loose the Swans, the first track on that is a very long track that's like 12 minutes or something like that and half of that the back half of it is kind of a, it's just an ambient soundscape with like the occasional snatch of a choir singing and uh-huh. you know howling wind sounds and stuff um it's you know it's not even there's no guitars in it or nothing uh but it is still interesting because it's clearly you know they're not trying to sort of in that part you're like oh okay well, this is something different well, there's the, there's that. It's different, but also, you know, they're not trying to make this acoustic guitar virtuoso, you know, right. like bit. Uh, it's clearly something different. So it just, yeah, you've just got to keep things interesting. Otherwise, yeah, well, you lose your listeners. Yep. And this song does it well. It really does. It really does. So uh, track three then is Harvest. is oh this is the acoustic opening one isn't it yeah um, it is it's got I, sort of a folksy intro to it i think yeah it's i i, I especially in comparison to the previous track i felt that this was really kind of wasted uh yeah they, uh, there's it's a single chord with a bit of lead over it they don't do anything interesting it's the first time that i became aware that this guy has a a, a rhythm a strumming rhythm pattern that he uses over and over and uh-huh. over again on both clean and distorted guitars and I'm like, now i'm like oh god i can hear it in every track <laughs> it's, yeah it's uh, six it's uh, only six minutes long which comparatively to a lot of the other songs is pretty short but it doesn't do a lot with that six minutes it's yeah. sort of uh it's sort of just a a meh song the- like it doesn't stand out one way or the other it's not uh it doesn't sort of like like I kind of like the the acoustic intro, 
but it doesn't feel like the song really goes anywhere and it doesn't feel like it brings you from track two to track four. Right. See, I did, the acoustic intro didn't really do anything for me. I liked the chorus the most in uh-huh. this. Uh, I mean, if you can call it a chorus, the Into the Orchard bit. Right. Uh, which I thought did have some nice chord changes and good like vocal melody as well. This is probably, I would say this is one of his best singing performances on the album because uh, there's a lot of clean singing in this track. Um and that's quite interesting. But then, you know, the solo is all a bit noodly uh, and the end of the track is just there. They're, like you say, it doesn't pull you through it at all and it doesn't feel like this song reaches a climax at any point. But it's too long to just be a bit of filler. Like, you know, you, fair enough. If it's only two minutes long, don't worry about that. But if you're going to spend however long, six minutes on something, then, you know, you kind of got to have a bit of dynamic in there and build to some kind of finish and it just never really feels like it does it just it just ends and that's kind of one of the themes of this album too is that you have a lot of uh pairs of songs on this album where they sort of do it wrong and then they do it right and so Mm. here you have this song where as you just mentioned they don't really do anything with that it could have been a lot shorter and then you have the two minute song later on where it's sort of this song done better (laughs) you know and and the same thing (laughs) and so uh tracks one and two Track two is like track one, but we learned our lesson and we we made it better. And so there's kind of this weird pairing of songs on this album where you have examples of, and here's one that doesn't quite work for me, but this actually is more what I was thinking. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. There's kind of, there's there is a good album in here somewhere, yeah. or at least a good EP. <laughs> yeah, I would I would agree with you. I think there's a good EP in here, and one that is much, but still showcases the scope of what this right. band can do, but is much more efficient in showing you that than what this album is overall. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, so, uh, JK, well, again, talking about um, sort of changes in dynamics, track four, then, is The Drapery Falls. Yeah, and this is a perfect example of things that I struggle with on this album. Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> go yeah. on, why? So, here we go. It, uh, it starts acoustically, again, which is another theme, I think, uh, with the band. Uh, it kicks in, it's much heavier than the previous song, and it's still kind of dreamy. I really like the, the bass line in this song, so from a musical standpoint, like I like, I like 
some of the content here, the song doesn't really kick in until two minutes. And then we have the song grinding out from eight minutes to 10 minutes or, you know, eight minutes to 11 minutes. And so I felt like this was a song where the beginning of the song and the end of the song, you could have sliced off and there's a better song in the middle. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. No, right. So here's where we argue. I, I, I'm of completely the opposite opinion. I think that the intro and the outro, which is basically the intro again, are the most interesting parts of this song. <laughs> and that it's everything else that I would cut out and compress. <laughs> well, it's so funny because we do feel the opposite. Because my other notes are uh, the growly vocals at five minutes give it a more sinister feel. It gets more interesting at the six minute mark and it builds to something that pays off. Um, it almost felt like a boss fight to me at the end of a level. Um, I liked the trade off of the heavy and the acoustic at eight minutes. Um, but overall, I felt like the slow build and then the slow outro washed it out for me, much like the uh. first song on the album. That's <laughs> that's where I struggled with that. So, And it might have just been because that's where my headspace was at with where I struggle with this band a little bit, is that... Um, is that the beginning and the end to me was was uh, were the least interesting parts? But that there you go. So we're so we're back to normal now. You and yep. I being on opposite ends of the spectrum with that. <laughs> normal uh, services resumed. <laughs> yeah, but we both like parts of the song, right? So so that's interesting. Yeah. Is that they're just different parts. It's, I actually I have a note saying that specifically uh, noting that to me the growling sections were quite dull. So <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, um, I did. I also laughed at the very nineties distortion on the vocals. Um, uh-huh. It's like talking about tall and maynard again it's like so 90s um the one thing i did really like was after the second pre-chorus um he suddenly everything changes like you know the music changes the vocal melody changes and he does he starts singing these ah bits um Uh and i was like that's really nice actually because i wasn't expecting it it's an unusual melody they're unusual chords um i just wish they were real lyrics yeah. I wish there were actually lyrics there because all he does then is go ah a, f- a couple of times and then it goes into a solo. It's like right. why? What a wasted opportunity! Yeah, and and to go back to what you were saying earlier about you know some of the some of the guitar parts not being that interesting. Like I I felt like up to this point in the album, the most proggy piece of this band is the bass. The bass to me is something that was pretty consistently interesting up until and through this point in the album but in terms right. of the complexity of the baseline like the baselines seem to be the most proggy thing about what they're doing here so far so i so my thought my note here was like for a proggy band the only instrument that feels proggy so far is the bass the drums and the guitars felt more vanilla to me um but that actually changes as we get a little further into the album but that was just kind of a, a thought i had here but yeah, yeah overall, I, I, I like the middle, did not like the beginning or the end. I'd say that that's valid. And that's something that, uh, you know, bass being interesting kind of is a hallmark of prog bands, really. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's very rare to find a prog band where the bassist is just plodding along playing root notes. Um, well, and, and I'll expand on that concept a little bit on the next song because like what so one of the things about the bass lines being interesting in prog in general but certainly on this album is that for me that's a hook so that's something that keeps me in even in a song that i'm not overly blown away by it's got an i'm always looking for a reason to stay in the song and that is a reason so on this song that the bass line was a reason for me to stay in even though overall i felt like took too long to get there and it took too long to leave 
Right. Okay, so so let's move on then to track five, and that's Dirge for November. I really liked the sort of muted guitar notes in the beginning uh, over the acoustic line. To me, I thought it lent a lot of emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, again, by the time the song kicks in at like a minute and 40 seconds, we've heard that acoustic phrase several times over. And this was the song, this song in the middle of this album that got me really thinking about like how I think about music. And the note that I made is... One of the dangers of super long buildups is that you run the risk of the listener getting into the groove of your intro, and then that becomes, in their mind, the structure of the song. And ah, this is where yeah. I struggle sometimes. And then when you drastically change direction, you can lose people. And the song that it immediately brought to mind to me was off the new Metallica album, which is Halo on Fire, which is three minutes of one of the best Metallica songs I've ever heard, and then a totally different song that I have no interest in whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, and it's very frustrating for me to listen to that. Like, I almost want to edit it myself and cut the song to three and a half minutes and just leave it that way and let that be my version of that song. Um, in here, it's nowhere near as drastic, but I feel like the groove is set and then things take a, a change to this high pitched riff. The vocals don't even start until the three thirty mark. So even if you're down with the melody, there's now two major transitions that you have to make in order to stay in the song. And that kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. So one is the the transition from what you think the groove is to where it kicks into, and then the transition from the melody to the vocals. So now there's two hurdles that you have to sort of overcome to stay in the song, or at least as I'm listening to it, that's that to me is a problem because I'm trying to find something that helps me stay in the song. And there are these things that can take me out at any given time. And if you have too many of those things, that becomes a problem because you're 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 making the listener have to jump through multiple hoops to stay in the song because not not every song you're going to love every element of right and so it's what are the hooks that are keeping you in it and what are the things that are taking you out of it and for me it's like if you ha- if you're making too many transitions and they're drastic enough that they're they're breaking what. I think is the groove of the song or what I think is the structure of the song. You're just giving me multiple exit ramps from this highway, you know, to, to get out of this song. And I feel like that, that is what I struggle with, with this band a lot is that these super long intros, if I really like the intro and then the rest of the song is not going to be anything like that, 
well, you've given me two minutes now of, oh, I kind of like this song. I'm in the groove here. And then it com- becomes something completely different. And that maybe that's why I'm not such a huge prog fan. Um, but I struggled with that on several songs on this album where I was like, oh, now it's not something I liked it before, not so much now. Or it, you took too long to rope me back in or come around to that first riff again or whatever. Um, and that was a concept that was really kicking around in my head while I was listening to this. So to make another comic analogy, it's like there are too many jumping off points in yeah. uh, <laughs> in the songs. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's funny what you said about, yeah, you know, um, getting so into the intro that you wish that was the rest of the song. That's exactly what I was saying about the previous track. That's exactly uh-huh. how I feel about the previous track. I wish that the song was actually just like the rest of the intro and the, ver- and the main verse. Um I think you're right. The intro to this is quite interesting. It's got some much more interesting acoustic stuff with those muted guitars and stuff going on. Um, but the rest of it is just... the. My problem with it is that... I mean, I like a good dirge. <laughs> oh, you yeah. Know, I, I like a good musical dirge. I really do. Uh, and if this... I think if this track stood by itself, it would be fine. But there are, you know, problems with it. And the chief one is that it sounds too much like the other tracks on the album. And if you present something as a dirge, and this is in, this is purely just down to the fact that it's called dirge, but if you present something as a dirge, and then it just sounds like the rest of the album, that's, that's a failure. That right. is not, you know, you've got to go a step further. You know, I, I want to hear Dear C. Ray, or I want to hear, you know, Totentance, or some kind of equivalent of, I, I want to hear something really dirgy compared to what I've heard before. And if what I've heard before on this album is already a bit dirgy in places, um, and it's not helped by, again, that same bloody strumming rhythm. <laughs> it's right. like, it's there again. Um, yeah, I was just like, and the chord progressions aren't much to shout about either. It, it's just like, it just sounds the same. Like, how is this a dirge when it just sounds the same as the rest of the album? And so I found that ultimately really disappointing. Um, the intro, as you say, was was good, but the rest of the track just dull. Right. And the other thing too, is that, you know, like seconds in a song are like dog years. So a minute and 30 seconds in a song is a tremendous amount of time. Like, oh yeah. So, so, so that's like when we're talking about like an intro being a minute and 40 seconds or two minutes long, that is a tremendous amount of time in the length of a song. And so it, it, that's where like these, the, the structure gets stamped into my head because that's, that's as, that's three quarters of what most song lengths are. You know what I mean? So if you spend two minutes showing me this one thing, then that's what the song is in my head. And then you go in a completely different direction. Now we're, now we've got a different song. And so that's where I struggle with, with a lot of this stuff. And so, uh, but again, this song made me think about that every time I listen to it. So even though that maybe the song wasn't for me, the conversation that it started in my head was to me, makes the song valuable, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have that issue as much. And I think that's just because I am more used than you to listening to lots of, you know, long songs that have very long intros that then are unrelated to the rest of the track and stuff. I don't have that issue with that, but I, I see where you're coming from completely. Um, yeah, with a band like Slayer, it's the opposite, right? For me, when I listen (laughs) to Slayer, when I listen to Slayer and, and no offense to Slayer fans, I love Slayer. 
when I listen to Slayer, I am listening for the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop, right? Most of the song is noise, and then within the song, there is that sweet caramel center yeah. of an amazing riff. When right, you, and and as we said when we talked about Slayer on very what was it the second episode of this show, sometimes you'll only hear that riff once, exactly. literally once in the entire song, but it's right. so great that you want to hear it again. Exactly, <laughs> it's the hook, right? And so the 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 balance that's always in my head of whether or not I ultimately end up liking a song or not liking a song is, did you have enough hooks to outweigh the exit ramps in that particular song? And so yeah. when you when that equation is imbalanced in the negative, then, then I, that's a song I'm not going to revisit as many times. Whereas if you do just know, and that's, that to me is the beauty of a band like Slayer is that if the piece of your song that I really love is only 15 seconds long, the fact that I keep coming back to that song means that that 15 seconds is pretty freaking amazing, right? That it keeps bringing me back to that. And so I, I think I'll sort of close out talking about this track by just saying that this is how much this track lost me. Uh, you've got the clean guitar bit at the end um, f- that goes on for quite some time. And I was so uninterested in it that uh, despite the fact that when this track ends, there is then a five second gap of silence before the next track. I basically just missed it. I completely, <laughs> completely missed where this track ends and the next begins despite there being five seconds of silence <laughs> in between them, because sure. I, I had just tuned out completely uh, by the time that clean guitar bit came in on this track. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, I had to really sort of, it wasn't until I was sitting down and making notes and stuff that I was like, oh, that's where this track ends. <laughs> because if you'd asked me, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. It was, uh, and that's, you know, I'm afraid that's, that's not a good sign. Um, however, Track six is the funeral portrait. is my other favorite song on the album right and my i literally only have one note about this track and it's like this is all a bit 70s hard rock isn't it uh-huh yeah <laughs> and that's uh, you know my first note was much more up-tempo and more heavy rock oriented uh it was upbeat i felt like it was a nice change of pace um it actually had a tiny bit of a megadeth feel to me with with uh parts of the riff although the the tone is uh, less clean than you know the sound that megadeth right, usually right. goes for but uh, i dug it 
And I thought that the vocals reminded me of uh, Chuck Schuldner from Death, like the way the vocals are delivered in the song. Of uh, It just rang to my ears like that. I think the vocals, one thing I didn't mention when I said uh, right at the start that like his vocals to me sounded a bit like, you know, that problem I have with sort of slick growling was that as the album went on, I actually thought they got better. There's a few tracks where that's not the case and they do have a really nice rasp to them. Uh, And this is one of them. Yeah, actually, this is one of those tracks where his growled vocals actually do sound really good to me and they don't just sound kind of growling by the numbers. They feel like they've got some weight and emotion behind them. Um, and the thing yeah. I liked about this too is that it, it, much like that other song, the second song in the album, which was Bleak, mm. I felt like this was a great representation of complexity, diversity, and contrast in the same way that the second song was. That was like the best example of what this band does. Uh, I'd agree, except that I do think this track is about two or three minutes too long. Um, I think this track would benefit from being chopped a bit because it does, because it doesn't do a lot other than that seventies hard rock pastiche, and there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. to do it for eight minutes with my nothing else it, going on, you know, that's a bit much. My note on the time says it almost overstays its welcome, but the Queen-like chorus kicks in and adds a nice <laughs> element. So, it, so I was there with you. And then that happened, and I was like, oh, okay, all right, all right, I'm back in. So it's that whole, like, exit ramp versus hook thing. Like, I was right. I was eyeing that exit ramp, I was almost off the highway, and then, oh, oh, oh no, you kept me back in. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, o- overall, I would say probably my second favorite song on the album. It's probably it feels close. the most upbeat, doesn't it? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, it's probably close to my second favorite. I'm not, I didn't really go to the extent of thinking about a sort of, of, of actually ranking the tracks, but certainly on the face of it, it would be a contender for second favorite just because, yeah, it is more interesting. It's, it's up tempo, more upbeat. Um, yeah, and doesn't sound like the rest of the album, which, you right. know, at this stage, frankly, is enough to mark it out as unusual. <laughs> Right, so that brings us on to track seven, Patterns in the Ivy. have to check the time to see if the song was actually as short as it ended up being (laughs) because i did a double take like i i was listening to it in the car and when this song ended at just under two minutes i had to do a double take to make sure that it like it didn't skip or oh that it wasn't just the intro for the next track that it wasn't just the intro for the next track i was like what it is a bit it is a bit odd that it's such you know, in a track, in an album filled with such long tracks that, yeah, there's this really, really short instrumental just before the final track. It's like, why not just make this the intro to the final track? I don't know. Because the other thing about it is that it's just, again, it's kind of uninteresting. It's fine. Again, it's not terrible. It's very well played. But there's, 
nothing interesting about it. It just it's just there. Have for you, two minutes. Have you played the game Deadly Premonition? Uh no, that's the Twin Peaks game. It's the Twin game, Peaks game. Yeah, I haven't played it yet. It's There's, on my list, but I'm gonna put a link to remind me to give you the link for the main theme that is like in every menu and stuff like that. It, it reminded me very this song reminded me very, very much of the main theme from Deadly Premonition. And uh so I liked it because it immediately brought to mind which is one of the weirdest and, and coolest games I've ever played. Uh, it immediately brought back the visions of that for me. I, I was surprised at the restraint that this song showed because, again, two minutes, um, I thought the piano was a nice touch. Again, like you said, I don't think the, the acoustic guitar line is mind-blowing, but it. I, I think you mentioned this earlier. It doesn't stay around long enough to to give you a negative impression. Right, right. That's what I say. It's not terrible, but right. I mean, do, do you really want if you're going to do an instrumental? If you're going to spend one of your eight tracks on an album on an instrumental, do you really want it to sound like it could be the background music for the level select on a video game? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You know. It's a pretty great video game. <laughs> it's like that's not to me. That's not something you, that you should aim for because that's the whole point of the the musical bits that you get, uh, you know, behind DVD menus or UI stuff in video games is that they loop. The whole point of them sure. is that they're kind of flat and they're right. just there to give you atmosphere rather yes. than actually do something interesting. Totally. Which, again, is why I say maybe this would have actually been better if he'd just superglued it to the start of the final track and make, you know, like, what the hell, make it a 14-minute track to close out the album why not well, you've already had two tracks over 10 minutes the other thing too is that it sets up an expectation because on most albums especially metal albums when you hear a short acoustic song it's usually because the song that comes after it is going to punch you in the face <laughs> that's true Either metallica set that speed. template didn't they yeah uh, <laughs> yeah but even like on the new megadeth album there's one on a lot of 80s albums you know there the, this was the second to last song so in the slot it's in that slot which is the second to last song on the album or the second to last song on a side where you have the sort of uh, deep breath that you take before you get bludgeoned with the final song on a side or on, or on the album. And so by putting an instrumental here in this slot, you are creating an expectation for anybody that grew up in the era that I grew up in that the next song is going to be kick ass. And so you're, you just have to know that when you're putting a song yeah. of that length of that type in the second to last slot that you better bring it with that next song. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, it was master of puppets. I think, wasn't it? That, well, I mean, ride the lightning did it first in terms of the intro, but master of puppets took it like a sort of step further. And then of course ended with damage incorporated, which has that acoustic intro. So, I, you know, maybe Metallica weren't the very first band to do it, but I'm pretty sure they popularized it because after Master of Puppets came out, I remember pretty much every metal album suddenly had an acoustic guitar somewhere before, as you say, a track that then punched you in the face. I'm and looking up right it, now. It set the template. And I oh, think it it's on like their it first anyway. album. And you, I, I don't even know if you've ever heard this band, but Firehouse, which was total glam metal from the early 90s at a time where it wasn't even safe to be coming out with glam metal albums. Um, where is their first album? Uh, I just want to see. It is 
uh, oh, it wasn't the second to last one, but there's a, there's a song called Seasons of Change, which is a minute and 29 seconds long, which is this acoustic, um, you know, build up to the next song, which is Overnight Sensation, which is probably the best song on that album, but is a, is a killer, right? It's a great, great hooks, great big song, but that came right after um, this acoustic thing. So, yeah, I definitely feel like by by the end of the 80s, that was a pattern. The, yeah. the acoustic song is the build up to a song that's going to punch you in the face. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, this does lead up to the final track of the album, which is the title track, Blackwater Park. And again, I like how this song starts. I like the rolling big intro. I like the, all the first couple of minutes. The guitar tone reminds me actually of Alter Bridge, which for some that'll be a great thing and for some that might not be so great. But that first riff I really like. And then at two minutes and 45 seconds, I'm out because it right. goes in this meandering direction. That yep. The thing that popped into my head is this is some Dave Matthews in concert bullshit right here. <laughs> <laughs> this is dave matthews hopping around on stage with with his bad angus young impression and jamming out a song for 20 minutes that is a three minute song yeah like that's that, the thing it feels like a song that suddenly that's lost its way yeah um, and we come it, back at five I agree minutes with 15 you that seconds but the first you know i mean i think the very very start isn't that interesting but then yeah at about i think it's about a minute 30 it gets, you know, the riff gets really good. There's a good verse. Uh, and then, yeah, suddenly it just goes all start like noodling around, goes all acoustic <laughs> again. And I'm like, yes. Just, why would you do uh, that? <laughs> my three words is it kills the song, kills the yeah. song. And then it comes back. So they try to pull us back in at five minutes, 15 seconds. We get back into what the core of that song was, well, um, which was by the it? way had a great bass line throughout. It- but was it? Because, right, my note on this is that it feels like it's a whole new song starting uh, with a completely different riff, and a, a fairly good riff, actually. But it's it doesn't even feel like they've pulled anything back from the start. It's it's just weird. And then at seven minutes, we get another sort of riff change. And then my f- sort of final couple notes on the song was that this song should have ended at the eight-minute mark with the thunderous drums and soloing over the drums. Like that to me could have been the play out of this song. So we have a 12 minute song that meanders for a good chunk in the middle, 
could have ended at eight minutes. And to me, the final four minutes of this song add absolutely nothing to the song. So they are dragging you across the finish line of not only this song, but of this album. I would say, I think the last 90 seconds kind of, well, don't save it, but, you know, sort of go some way towards redeeming it. Uh, I think the but to last me, that's two... like an after credit scene when everybody has left the theater, <laughs> right? Like... Oh, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, yeah. yeah, you know. But I think the last two uh, lines, like when he literally sings, Sickly Amazons raise this monumental mark, the sun sets forever over Blackwater Park. That's good. That's actually really, sure. really good. Um, but then he can't resist noodling around again on the acoustic guitar. It's yeah. like, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so the album ends it ends with a whimper this is this is the problem the album ends not you know with a bang but with a whimper so um, if you cut out the from two from if you cut out two minutes in the middle and three and a half minutes at the end and put together a six and a half minute song this could have been a decent song to go out of the album on and that really is a metaphor for the whole album the isn't whole it? You know, if, album if the you just album. chopped, if you chopped bits out of the album and put it together, you'd have a good twenty, twenty-five minute EP. Which again, kind of sounds a lot like Saint Anger, right? So yep. with Metallica's album, there, man, if someone could go in there with a scalpel and pull out the nuggets of each song that are three and a half minutes long, that really, really captured what they were trying to do, we'd be having a different conversation about Saint Anger, and I, I feel like that with this as well. Um, yeah. Which, again, is not to say that I did not enjoy this album, because as difficult as it was for me to get into it, once I was into it, I had a lot of these songs kicking around in my head. And there's two in particular that we talked about, uh, The Funeral Portrait and Bleak, which I really like off of this album and are enough to make me want to go and check out more of Opeth. I like what this band is capable of. I don't think it was super well executed on this album. Right. I, I that's what I was just going to close out saying I would be really interested to hear from uh the listeners and the patrons who did nominate this album. Um I mean partly I'm interested to hear what they, you know, think of our opinions. I'm going to assume they're going to disagree with most of what we said. They've already thrown um, their monitors out the window or smashed right. their phones on the ground. <laughs> yeah. But I would also be interested to hear given what we've said about it, you know, if there are other later or even earlier Opeth albums that they think would be more in line with, you know, what we like about this album. Sure. Because, yeah, there are good bits on this album, um, but they, for me, are not outweighed by the, I don't want to say bad bits, but the not good bits. Like I said, there's nothing terrible on this album. It's all very well played. Nothing jars. Um but it's just, it doesn't hold my interest enough, not enough of the good bits to hold my interest right. yeah. throughout the whole album. So I'd be really interested to hear if there's another album, a later or earlier album, that uh, listeners think would actually be more, you know, up our alley, as it were, from this band. Right, and it goes exactly right back to the equation of um, the amount of things that gave me a reason to stay into each song versus the amount of things that gave me a reason to jump out of each song. And... Uh, that math equation is not always present in the front of my head, but when I'm struggling with an album, that equation starts to come to the forefront and I start thinking about that, you know, in my head of like, what are the hooks here versus what are the things that are making me jump out? And so it's always in the background, but on this album, I felt like I was, I was having that internal conversation on several of these songs. Um, but an interesting album and I'm, I'm glad we listened to it. I now have a frame of reference for Opeth, which I did not have before. 
Absolutely, same here. I was going to say, it's like when you read, you know, when you read a novel and some novels, you know, within 10 pages, you're just flip, 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 flip. You know, you can't stop, you can't put it down. Yep. And other novels, it takes you like, you know, 10 sessions to get through the first 50 pages uh, because, you you know, it's just not, it's not drawing you in. And that's, I think, you know, the same can be said sometimes of albums of you don't notice until it becomes difficult until you can feel you realize that your interest has just wandered somewhere and you know you're like oh god i was supposed to be listening to that album how did i instead i was thinking about what i'm going to cook for dinner or whatever you know? right well and I, and when, I, that, I, when that doesn't happen it's because the album has kept your interest and so you don't think about it it's only right. when things go wrong that you start to think oh why did that happen and I pride myself on giving every album a chance with the whole three listen rule thing and all that kind of stuff before I start to really form opinions. But that's not how everybody listens to music. And so there are a lot of people which, if you don't have enough hooks the first time through, they're done. They don't even listen oh, yeah. to the whole album. Yeah, and so absolutely. you have people that jump off after song two. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, man, that that's obviously, as a creator, you think about that in whatever whatever creative outlet you're doing, right? Is, you know, do I, do yeah. I have enough to bring... Um, my audience in and keep them there. And so with music, it's obviously no different, but, uh, but yeah, it's super interesting album. I'm very glad that we did uh, an episode on it. And I will certainly, uh, as you said, I would love to hear from people who are fans of Opeth, like point me towards the album. That's really going to click with me and I will devour it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. So uh, this, this really is the last episode of volume two now. (laughs) It is. Yes. Um, uh, just want to let everyone know we will do another video show sometime in the next few weeks uh, as a kind of coda to this volume. So if you're a patron, uh, keep an eye out for that because I will post a patrons only thread for your questions for Brian and I to answer on that show. Um, when we start volume three proper, we will post the album that we're going to cover. We'll post it on the Facebook page. Uh, I'll let the patrons know, of course. Uh, and I'll, you know, I'm sure we'll mention it on Twitter as well. So, Unless you literally only listen to the shows and have no other contact with us whatsoever, uh, you have no excuse not to do your homework before the episode. That's but right. we, we we still don't even know what that album's going to be ourselves yet. So uh, yeah, we're not we're not keeping it from you. We literally haven't even decided ourselves yet. Oh, I have many thoughts about volume three of this show. Like <laughs> my my internal thought is always: Have I built up enough trust with the audience yet for this album? That's, oh, all, so yeah, that's screw, always my mental screw, list. Like on, I have we're, my, we're nearly twenty five episodes in. You know, like if you haven't built up enough trust with them by by now, screw them. <laughs> well, because we've only we've only flirted with the eighties albums that I love at this point, and so. Uh, but at some point, we're going to take some deep dives, and so. But yeah, but you know what? I, I give our audience a lot of credit. They stayed with me for Def Leppard. They stayed with me for Twisted Sister. So I I, I feel good about where we're we're going in the future. But. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of pressure. Now we're on volume three. There's a lot of pressure there because I, oh, yeah. I was I was very pleasantly um, not surprised, but um, we had a couple of posts from people about how they felt like we really uh, went on a real run there with season with volume two of the show and and several albums that people were just like really blown away by. So there's there's always a little bit of uh, you know that pressure to make sure that we're we're bringing the good stuff for volume three. Yeah, well, you know, we do what we can. Um, That's true. And, uh, yeah, hopefully people like it. So, 
Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, as always, remember, if you uh, do enjoy the show, please spread the word. Rate us on iTunes, because that does help. Uh, and, of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrashitout. Go to thrashitoutpodcast.com if you want to get in touch. That's got links to our email and Twitter. Or, of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout. And, yeah, as I say, we will post on those you know, sort of social media outlets and Patreon and what have you, what the next album is going to be for Volume 3. But until then, we will see you, or be speaking to you (laughs) in your ears soon. Take care.